Good afternoon in some parts of the world and welcome to the 47th Fireside Chat. We're so happy to be here and I want to mention how this Fireside Chat gets produced. This is all thanks to Oliver and Justin. Oliver sets up the server and maintains it for us and gets everybody logged on with instructions and working and of course Justin does all the editing. Um, on Oliver's website, Matrix Vision, and on all of the videos that we post to YouTube for the Fireside Chat, there is a link where you can help. Um, Oliver, I know a lot of you appreciate these Fireside Chats and look forward to them. So help Oliver out, please, with the server and the cost of the server. It's a lot of time and effort and cost, and we would appreciate it if you can contribute to that. And with thanks to Justin as well, Justin has um, a wonderful um, art site that's uh, justinsnodgrass.com and he does art based on MBT so you can also support that. Those are our two staunch supporters of the Fireside Chat. Now usually we start off with uh, those of you who are present with the questions, but today Oliver received a rather interesting uh, question from Stephen uh, in Oxford in the UK. So we're going to start with that question and maybe a couple of the MBT forum questions that we have got fallen behind on. So we'll do it a little differently and then we'll pass it over to all of you who have questions and are present. So for our first question from Stephen. The short and to the point question is, what do you think, Tom, are the limits and weaknesses of your work? In, a partic in particular, the VR reality is digital information model, which, is, of course, is your whole, your whole uh, model based on that. A little bit longer version. He's, I first personally found your work to be of great benefit, particularly in bringing clarity to so many questions of spirituality that other teachers tend to mystify. You have a fantastic common sense approach. Your virtual reality digital information metaphor has great explanatory power that demystifies and makes such easy sense of seemingly paradoxical or esoteric claims of others. You emphasize evidence over belief and open-minded skepticism and seem to enjoy being asked questions you haven't been asked before. And I think this is one I haven't heard yet. What do you, and of course, that was the first question I read. What do you think are the limits and weaknesses of your work? Uh, you refer to your theory as being simply logical deduction and evidence based, but actually, no matter how much evidence you've acquired and however scientific and logical you have been in formalizing your theory, it is still inevitably the work of one person's experience and one perspective, and therefore cannot entirely escape limitation, error, and bias. Secondly, I think the VR analogy could lead some to some people seeing less significance and gaining less benefit from nature and organic living, as if everything is virtual and everything is information. What is the difference between the life spent in front of a computer in a concrete building and a life spent under the sun by the ocean in the mountains with the wind in your hair. Like yourself, I'm an idealist and I see everything as being in and of consciousness. But the images of consciousness of nature are the expression of something quite different to that of the creation of egos. 
Evidence and experience shows that time spent in nature has many physical, emotional, and spiritual benefits, and time in concrete cities absorbed in technology has many detrimental effects. I think it's possible that seeing everything as virtual and as information could lead to seeing less significance in our immediate environment. Thanks so much for being available with your fireside chats. Well, that was a pretty long and uh, involved question. I'll try to give even a shorter <laughs> answer, but probably not. But I'll try just the same. Um, well, let me answer the, the last part first, because that, that will be a good place to start. And that is the idea that because this is a virtual reality, it's somehow not a real reality. It's a, you know, it's a fake reality of some sort because it's virtual and not real. Well, that just brings up the definition of what's real, you see. And that attitude is an attitude really born of prejudice, where you think this reality, the physical reality, that's real, where the sun shines and we walk in the beach and the sand comes up between our toes, that's real. And when we sit and we watch a computer and we watch our elf walk across the beach and uh, imagine that the sand squits up between his toes too, that that's somehow fake. That's not real. Well, it's not for us, I guess, as the player, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not as, as real. But, you know, for the elf, the elf is looking at the sun. He does feel the rays of, you know, from the elf's perspective is what I'm saying. From the elf's perspective, the virtual reality is as real as reality can get. And from our perspective, this reality with its sun and its beaches and its trees and nature and all of that, that's as real as reality can get. The fact that we are avatars walking around in this virtual reality doesn't make that any less real. So what is, you know, what is this, this thing real? Well, there is nothing more real than information. Shut off all the information that you take in. That means close off all your senses. You can't feel anything, see anything, smell anything, hear anything, taste anything. Take all those away, and how real is your reality now? Well, you don't have a reality now. It's gone, you see. The only thing you have now is I exist. You have the Descartes moment of, you know, I'm, I'm aware that I exist, and that's all there is in my reality. Okay, well, that sun and that beach and the stand and the water and the smell and all of that nature that you think is real is only real because you get that as information. Information is what is real. We get information, we interpret that information, and that interpretation of our information is our reality. Period. Okay? There is no other reality than the information that you take in. So it doesn't get any more real than information. So here we are, and we are consciousness. And because in consciousness, our environment is one in which we communicate with each other. We just share ideas. We share communications. And that's basically what I've, you've heard me call, you know, a metaphor is, you know, the, the great chat room, you know, this large chat room. We, we chat, we communicate with each other, and that's real. And if you're in that space, 
that's all that real is. Well, in that space, it's hard to have consequences. There are very few consequences. So it's difficult for us to grow up. So we create this virtual reality with a very tight rule set where we can go and experience things like the water and the sand squishing up between our toes and, you know, the caress of our lover and, you know, the sunshine and, and the dogs barking and nature and trees and mountains. So we, we create a virtual reality that creates for us interactions with other people that help us evolve the quality of our consciousness. And for us to think that that's fake is just silly. It's information that we interpret, and that is our reality as consciousness. So, yes, here we are, IUOCs, and we're in this immersive game, and it isn't any more real than that. There is nothing more real than that. So this idea that the virtual reality is somehow a fake reality is nothing more than prejudice that we have about virtual reality. This is an immersive reality, so we don't have any other reality. See, when you're a player at your computer, you have two realities you're involved in. The virtual one you're playing, so your World of Warcraft character, you have that reality you're playing in, but you can always put that on pause and go up and interact in the other reality, which is you know, the reality of uh, that we call our our physical reality, which, of course, is just another virtual reality, but we have those two realities. So we think one of them is fake and one of them is real. They're both virtual realities. It's both information. See? So it's reality is information. And we're immersed in this reality as consciousness, as, as um, free will awareness units. We're totally immersed. And to us, there is nothing there is no other reality, of course, until we realize that we're consciousness, and then suddenly we have a bigger reality. We not only have this virtual reality that you call the physical universe, which is what you think is so real, but then we have an even larger reality of consciousness that seems bigger, broader, and after you've spent a lot of time exploring that larger reality, it seems more real to you than the virtual one that you call your physical universe. You see, so it just depends on your attitude and the way, your perspective of the, of the data that you receive and how you interpret it. Your dream reality is real, just as real as your awake reality. There is no difference in the realness of either one. They're just different realities. So the answer to the first part of that question is, is this kind of, feeling of fakeness to this reality and therefore nothing really matters because it's just virtual. It's as real and every consequence that you deal, every decision you make is just as real as any decision you make in any other reality at any other time. Okay? It's experience. It's choice making. So those choices aren't less important because you're in this physical reality or less important because you're in a dream reality or less, report, less important because you're daydreaming. When you make choices, you evolve or de-evolve by the quality of that choice, period, no matter what reality you're in. So which of them are, is more important? They're all important. They all cause you to evolve or de-evolve, which is what you do as consciousness. 
none of them are fundamentally any more real than any others. So some of them, you know, they're all different. Each one's different. Each one has things that it can teach you or things that you can learn in it that you can't learn in the others. They're all unique. They all have their limitations. Um, you know, there are things you can learn in the dream reality or in an out-of-body reality that you can't learn in this reality that we call our physical universe. And there's some things we can learn here that we can't learn in the dream reality. You see, they're just different reality frames. So this idea that it's somehow inferior because it's virtual is no more than prejudice. All right, so for the first part of the question is what are the weaknesses and what are the, you know, what's the, the uh, limitations? of this reality frame. Well, the limitations of any reality, and I'm talking about our individual reality. You know, all of us live in our own personal reality. What are the limitations of our reality? Well, it's our experience. What are the limitations of our experience? That's what limits our reality. If you you know, grow up in a in a box and never leave the box, the inside of that box is all of your reality. That's it. You don't have any more reality inside the box. And one day you find a door and you open the door and walk outside the box. Now your reality is bigger. Okay? And outside that box, maybe you run into other beings like yourself and have relationships. Now your reality is even bigger yet. So your reality its limitation is defined by your experience. Okay, so now, how do I make this model? You know, we're going to look at the, the, the weaknesses or the, the limitations of the model. The way I came up with this model is I looked at all of the facts of my experience. Now, facts are things that are a little different than opinions. But you can have, uh, well, everybody knows we have objective facts. You know, we have an objective fact. You're, you're sitting in front of a computer or some sort of electronic device that's wired you up to this particular uh, server and this particular thing. So these are all, you know, physical facts, objective facts. Uh, your computer is an objective fact. But there's also subjective facts. Now, subjective facts aren't, aren't, don't become facts in the same way as objective facts. Objective facts basically come about because we all agree that, you know, there's a table there or that there's a vase on the table. We all see that. We agree it. We go up and touch it, smell it, and we agree that it's there, an objective fact, the measurement we make. And it has to be something that we all see basically similarly. Okay, subjective facts are things that are more individual, but subjective facts have to be have to be determined as facts as apart from opinion by statistics. Okay? So you give somebody a pill and you say swallow this pill and it'll take your headache away. Just because you swallow the pill and your headache goes away doesn't mean the pill made your headache go away. Your headache may just have gone away all by itself anyway, because headaches do that sometimes. But if you have ten thousand people with headaches and you give each one that pill and of the 10,000, 9,900 of them's headache goes away within 10 minutes, now you have some statistical evidence that that is a fact that that pill can, can uh, get rid of headaches. That becomes a fact, 
even though a headache is entirely a subjective quantity. See, that becomes a subjective fact. Take the pill and your headache goes away. So we have all the things that are in the, what's called the soft sciences are all, you know, the facts we have, the facts in sociology and psychology and anthropology and so on. All of these facts are statistical. Okay. Now, when you determine, when statistics is what determines whether you have a fact or not, then you have kind of soft facts that are, have a, uh, you know, maybe a, a mild or, or a, uh, somewhat of a statistical um, uh, significance. And statistical significance is a, is a mathematical term where you use statistics to determine the significance or the, or how much of a fact is this and how much of an opinion is it. So if you have a statistical significance of one in a hundred, in other words, there's only one chance in a hundred that this thing is not a fact and it's just some random event that happened. It's not really something that is a factual event. Then that's in science seen as pretty good. Pretty strong fact. If you have it that's a, that's a, say 10,000 to one that it's just your experience was just a random thing that didn't have anything more to it than, than randomness, then that's a very strong fact. And a million to one is a super, super strong fact, you see. So these are all various levels of statistical significance. But you don't have ever a hundred percent, even if it's a billion to one or a billion billion to one that, that your experiences were imaginary and not fact, then it's still a billion to one. It's not a, you know, the probability is one over a billion and one over a billion is not, you know, doesn't come out to be that the, that a zero comes out to be a very, very small number that, that it is a, uh, that it's not a fact, that it's just a circumstance, that it's a random event without meaning, but it's still not a zero. Still could be a random event, but it's highly, highly, highly not likely. So we call these facts, um, I, I guess I should say, that's what separates the hard science from the, from the soft science. Hard science deals in objective facts. Soft science deals in statistical facts things that are highly probable. And how highly they are probable just depends on the math. Okay, so how did I make this model? I took all the I took all the facts that I knew in the outside material world, and I learned most of those in physics classes and from my own experience in the world. And I took all the facts that I knew from the consciousness world, which is non-physical. Now, those facts had to be generated by meticulous research. You have to do experiments and do them again and again and again and again until you convince yourself that it's a fact. In other words, until you've developed enough statistics that you feel confident that this cause and effect is real, even though it's non-physical. Okay, so that's what I did. I took all of my non-physical facts from my research and my own experience, things that I knew were real because I had done them over and over again and they were reproducible and the effects are understandable and they're clear. And I took all of my physical facts and I came up with a theory that explained all of those facts. 
Okay, so what's the weak what's the weakness? What are the limitations? Well, there's there's many limitations on both sides. And one is the limitation is that this is my group of facts. This is not necessarily all the facts there are. There may be both physical and non-physical facts that I have not experienced. They're not inside my experience. And if they're not inside my experience, then they can't be part of my model, you see. So it's only as good as the completeness of the source of facts you've got to start with that you're trying to to uh, explain with your model. So if I've if my uh, my experience both in the physical and non-physical has only has only uh, connected with or or, or uh, understood let's say 10% of the facts, then my model you know is only uh, going to cover about 10% of uh, of reality. If there's other facts out there that disagree with my model, then I wouldn't know that because they're outside of my experience. So that's the basic, uh, you know, limitation of it. Now, we look at a model, say, what good is a model? What, what differentiates, a, differentiates a good model from a bad model or a poor model or a mediocre model? Models are judged by one thing only, and that is how well do they answer all the questions. How well do they reflect the reality of your own individual experience? That's what makes a model good or bad. So we take a model like um, like uh, classical physics. Okay, classical physics is a model, Newtonian model, and it it answers a you know a lot of questions. It explains a lot of things, like um, the sun being the center point of our of our solar system and planets move around it that's a more elegant explanation with simpler math than the result that the earth is the sun is the center and the sun and all the other planets evolve around the earth well they're just different mathematical views but one's just a lot simpler more elegant and fewer assumptions than the other so that's the one we go with and that's the one with the sun in the middle so newton delivers a lot of Facts makes the world look simpler, a lot of understanding, and in as much as he can, he can answer, you know, that he can what, uh, you know, run a run a line through all the points on the graph with an explanation. Then his model is a good model, but then we come up with things like things that go very fast or things that are very small, and Newton's model fails. It doesn't work, so the model's limited. A good model, but it has limitations. All right, so we then we have relativity deals with fast models or fast moving things. So that model explains a lot of things about stuff that goes fast, and suddenly we understand that better. But relativity doesn't tell us everything. It only works in a certain area under certain assumptions. It doesn't tell us about all the things we know. It doesn't explain all the facts we have. So we have quantum mechanics, and quantum mechanics explains a lot of those other facts that we don't know, but a quantum mechanics would never derive the things that relativity derives. You see, so it can't derive the things relativity derives. So it can only tell us part of the facts. So we look at relativity and quantum mechanics, and we say those are not complete theories because neither one of them can explain 
everything. And they can't explain the things that each that the other explains. One can't explain what the other explains. So they're not general theories. So we look for bigger theories that explain more. So my model is a model of everything, which then claims to explain both quantum mechanics and relativity and consciousness. So it, it explains the objective world as well as the subjective world. In other words, you have subjective experiences. You have nightmares. You, know, you have out-of-body experiences. You have a telepathic communication with your son or your daughter or your wife or your mother, somebody like that. Uh, you've had experiences that uh, are things that you can't explain with a material model, quantum mechanics and relativity and Newton's just don't explain those because they're personal, subjective experiences. But the My Big Toe model does explain those, gives them some theoretical basis of why that would happen and what's the point of it and what does it mean. It explains it in those terms. So that's why I say that the, the MBT model explains both the, both the objective and the subjective worlds. It explains all the worlds, all the, all the things in our experience. Now, each person has to look at their own experience base, their own personal experience base, and say, how many of my facts, my experiences, my things that I feel are real, how many of those are explained by quantum mechanics, by relativity, by Newton, by an MBT model, you see? And that's how you grade any model, including mine. If only 50% of the things in your experience are explained, then that's a so-so model. Not a bad model. explains half of your experience. But if it explains, say, 90% of all your experience, then that's a good model. And if it explains all of your experience, then that's a really good model. So... How, do you, how good is this model depends on how well it explains your experience, your experience in the physical world, your experience in the consciousness world, in the non-physical world. So that's, you know, that's how you judge a model. You should never look at a model as it is the answer, the only answer, the complete answer, because we don't know that. I have a limited base of facts from which I've driven this model. I obviously haven't experienced, can't have experienced everything that there could be to possibly experience. So I don't have all the data, yet I've made this model that, that explains all of the things I have experienced. That may not explain all the things that you have experienced, or you may not understand how it does that. Then don't look at this as a, as a, <clears throat> you know, as a model is something that has to be perfect or you know, it's either perfect or it's a failure, it, it works as well as it can work for you. So if you look at my big toe and it only responds to half of your facts, well, then you have to keep searching. You have to find something that corresponds to all of your facts. And you have to keep reassessing because it may be that you're just not understanding how to apply the model to your facts. You see, so that's the other thing. How much of your facts are really facts? How much of your facts are beliefs and opinions? 
So there's lots of uncertainty everywhere from my incompleteness of, of, uh, of experience to your incompleteness of experience to you and I both seeing things as facts when, when they're not. Okay? So there's, there is, what, uh, uncertainty in all of this, and there will never be zero uncertainty. That doesn't exist. There's no way that we're all, each one of us is going to say, we have experienced everything that can be experienced, and we know all the things that can possibly be known, and nothing else will ever be experienced or known other than this set. You'd have to be pretty arrogant to come to that conclusion. There's always going to be more, right? I mean, people are going to be evolving for, you know, thousands and millions of years past the point where we are now. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to become known that aren't known now. So we have to realize that no matter where we are, we only know a, probably a small subset of what there is to be known. And then we can generate our own toe to explain our own experience and realize that we may be confused about a fact and an opinion. Things that, that are beliefs and opinions, we may see them as facts. And now we, you know, we want a model to explain them. Well, they really are not going to be explainable because they're just opinions. So that's, that's the limitation of this model and any model. So it's, you know, my model is judged just like quantum mechanics and relativity and Newtonian physics are, are judged. How well does it answer your questions? How well does it address your facts? Period. If it doesn't address all your facts, then it's, you need to develop your own model beyond that. And you need to always be open to your model being wrong, your model being changed. As new facts come in, rather than say, oh, that can't really be a new fact. That just must be an anomalous something or other, or somebody made that up. It couldn't possibly be true because it doesn't match my model. You see, now you're stuck. You'll never get past that point. You're stuck in a belief trap. So you always have to say, my model's open-ended. I could be right, I could be wrong. There's a lot of things I don't know. And every time a new fact comes in, I will assess it. First, I'll try to determine, is it a fact or not? I'll give it maybe some probability of whether it's a fact or not. And then I'll see how I can, you know, uh, explain it from my model. And if my model doesn't explain it, I need to enlarge my model. I need to grow it. I need to see why doesn't it explain it. Or I need to throw my model away and start with a different model. And everybody should be answering these questions for themselves all the time. And your model, your own personal toe, should be growing and changing and evolving, adding new things, throwing away old things all the time. It's a never-ending process. And that was my very short answer to this uh, very short question. <laughs> But I get a, a lot of things that that are that are like this. So I I thought I would wax eloquent on that eloquently on that. I hope so that people understand. I get that a lot. Of yeah, this is just a virtual reality. Who cares what I do? This virtual reality is as important as it gets. There isn't anything more important than the things that you do here. The things that you do everywhere are just as important. 
as the things that you do anywhere. The fact that you're making a choice, that's what's important. Thank you, Tom. That, that really answered it very well. I think I'd like to point out another thing about scientific models. Um, the good models have few assumptions. Now, for instance, a lot of publicity about many worlds um, it made the London Times, the headline of the London Times, you know, many worlds theory or parallel universes. It has 14 assumptions. A good model has a few assumptions, and I know you've often said your model has just two assumptions, and that is consciousness exists and it evolves. Um, in addition, you have challenged anyone to present a fact that would not fit under your My Big Toe theory, and so far nothing has come of that and nothing has not been able to be explained. It's not so much a challenge as I really would like to know things that don't fit my model. That's, you know, more than anything that I'd like to find out would be things that don't fit because things that don't fit allow me to make a better model. I don't think my model's necessarily done. It's just the best I can do at this point. So, uh, and I didn't know any, I, I didn't know about the 14, uh, the 14 uh, things under assumptions that you said about under many worlds. I don't know that anybody's ever counted all the assumptions in many worlds. Most people may not be able to count that high. Um, that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I heard that, you know, I've heard that said about the um, string theory models because string theory has has a lot of dimensions and each dimension is an independent assumption. And some string theory is 10-dimensional, so it's got 10 assumptions. Some is 14-dimensional with 14 assumptions. And, yes, it is true, Donna, and there's a thing called Occam's Razor that says that the simplest answer is usually the best answer. And... There's another thing that I don't know that it has a name, but it's kind of a like Occam's razor in physics. And that in physics, we say that if an explanation is not simple and elegant, simple meaning few assumptions and elegant, then it can't possibly be a fundamental, you know, explanation. So anything fundamental is not going to be complicated, is going to be very um elegant in its solution and in its understanding. Uh, now, as we get away from things that are fundamental, we get away into those things that are, uh, you know, logical consequences of things that are fundamental. Well, they can get very complicated. But if you ask the very fundamental questions, the answer to those have to be very simple and elegant explanations. And if they're very complex, then they're probably not fundamental. It's interesting that you bring that up because in the Rebooting the Cosmos um, video where they had five world-class physicists there, Edward Fredkin said, when we do discover the answer, and ironically, he's a digital physicist. Um, ironically, he said, um, when we do find the answer, it will be simple. And... Consciousness is that the fundamental reality is is simple, and yeah. that's part of yours. So, well, you can't ask any more fundamental any more fundamental question than what's the nature of reality. <laughs> that's as 
that's the most fundamental question that anybody can ask. You know, what's the nature of reality? So that has to have a very simple and elegant answer to it. You, you don't need 10 pages of mathematics to answer a question, what's the nature of reality? That's something that everybody can understand. It's something that's simple. It doesn't require a, a scientist to understand something like that. <clears throat> All right, uh, we'll move on to the next question, and I'm going to take one of the older questions that we have um, had to push to, to the side, so I'm, I'm kind of going against our policy of allowing those present to ask their questions. I'm going to ask just a couple of those at the beginning so we can give the MBT forum people a chance to have their question heard. Um, this one is, um, your answers often seem a bit idealistic. For example, when you say that everything happens for a reason and we have free will, otherwise there's no point. These answers fit very nicely in a reality where nasty things don't happen. But as you're aware, this is a reality full of senseless unfairness and tragedies. Um, no sense to this. There is nothing in this for the system to gain and nothing to learn, he feels. It would help if your answers were more balanced in this regard and less idealistic. Life is often unfair and sometimes very tragic. Nature is at odds with humanity and machine-like in its behavior. And to finish up, a theory of my own, I keep hearing people struggling with time and what it actually is. Now, I know we have a very specific video on YouTube that is dedicated to time, so you don't necessarily have to go into that that whole thing, but he's okay. at, he's asking about um, you know the idealistic uh, sure. nature sure. of of your okay. theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I don't know where uh, this person got the idea that I say that uh, everything happens for a reason. Well, you could maybe say that I guess in a in a very uh, logical way. That's true. Everything happens for a reason, but that reason might be randomness. Randomness might be the reason. Uh, I've always said that uh, there's a lot of random components in our experience, and that's there on purpose. There's this thing I talk about in a book that I call, um, uh, you know, I, I refer to the concept from physics of Brownian motion, which is if you look at a bunch of molecules uh, in a in a gas, in a, in a liquid, whatever, you just look at molecules, you see they're all just bumping around and clean every which way, every which direction. It's just like it's all this stuff is just flying around in, in, in random ways. And they call that Brownian motion. It first was seen with little particles of smoke. As people looked at the particles, they could see they were always randomly moving around. <clears throat> well, I use the term social, you know, that, that, that the, our social uh, Brownian uh, Interactions are the same way. Everybody's in this world making choices, and our choices affect each other. So the choices that you make affect me, and the choices I make affect you. And all the people that that are around me, my choices affect them, and they all their choices affect me. So you can see what kind of it's not really random in the in the uh, mathematical sense of random, but it creates this soup, this stew of uncertainty, because you always have to interact with others. You're not alone in this world. It's not like you are the only real person in this world and everything else is like a rock. You're interacting with all these other people. 
and you have no control whatsoever what they do with their free will. But what they do with their free will affects you. So there's lots of uncertainty in your life. Everybody's life is full of uncertainty. So in the sense of that everything happens for a reason, if you interpret that as, oh, I just dropped a rock on my foot. Oh, I wonder what the reason was for that. Well, the reason may be just simply that uh, you weren't paying attention to, uh, you know, your hand and your hand opened up and the rock fell there. Or maybe, uh, you know, you had a blackout or who knows that there's just a, you know, there was a reason for it. But it's not like, well, I guess I needed to have a rock fall on my toe. At that level, no, you didn't need to have a rock fall on your toe. Just stuff happens. You know, you got a twitch, your hand opened up, uh, you started thinking about something else and you forgot you were holding a rock. There's lots of things that happened. Somebody else bumped you. There was an earthquake and you dropped a rock. You know, there's so many things that go on in our environment that we do not control. And we just have to deal with these things, which is what gives us this rich environment of choices because all this stuff is not planned. So a lot of our life is dealing with things that are more or less random dealing with things that are out of our control, right? So you read the story about the, you know, the family driving to their Sunday school picnic and got wiped out by a truck that uh, where the driver fell asleep, crossed the center line and ran onto them head on. Don't start thinking, well, I wonder why all that people in that family had to die. There must be a reason why that had to happen. No, there is stuff happens. It happens because of the choices we make, like we get in our truck and drive it because we think we can stay awake long enough to get home. There's a choice that's made, and those choices have, have ramifications to ourselves and to other people. Stuff happens, we get to deal with it. So, no, Tom Campbell does not say that everything happens for a reason and everything is always wonderful. Life is harsh. Life is hard. And the other mistake that's made is that because things are hard and difficult and painful doesn't mean that they're bad, doesn't mean that you can't learn from them. We're not here to have a good time. We're not here to, uh, you know, to escape pain and misfortune. We're here to interact in this soup of interaction that we have, deal with it, and learn from it. That's what we're here for. And sometimes we don't learn much unless there's pain associated with it. Somehow, sometimes we have to be hit between the eyes with a two before to get our attention. And pain is one of the great teachers. So any situation you're in and you say, oh, well, look at this horrible things that are going on in the world, going on in the world and all those nasty people. Well, yes, there's a lot of nasty people and a lot of horrible things going on in the world, but it's all the stuff we have to deal with. We have to contend with that. And as we deal with it, we evolve. So you see, there's something, there's something that we can make. There's something valuable. There's good decisions we can make. There's growing decisions we can make in any situation we find ourselves in. So it's not that the world should be a happy place where everybody smiles and only good things happen to people. Well, that might be the world if all of us are very low entropy beings and we're all full of love and we all care about each other, then the world would be more like that. But we're not. So we interact with who we are and it's a little ugly sometimes. That's our 
opportunity to deal with it. We can't change anybody else, so the only thing we can do about it is change ourselves and grow up, let our light shine. So, yeah, that question is, is I hear a lot, but it's really misinterpreted or it's, it's missing the point. The point isn't that this is a bad place because everybody isn't happy all the time. This is a wonderful place because everybody is always challenged with things to learn and has an ability to grow up by the choices they make. That makes it a really good learning lab. But no, everything isn't happy all the time, and no, free will doesn't mean that you get whatever you want. So, you know, I guess the, I guess the, the short answer would be suck it up, cupcake. This is the real world, and you need to deal with it. It's not necessarily going to be fun, but it should be educational and productive to your growth, which is what you're here for. All right, Tom. One small aspect of that question also was how does precognition work if we have free will and the future is not sent? Oh, precognition, you know, works because there are things that are probable to happen, not because things have to happen. Predetermination says everything has to happen. It's all predetermined. There are no choices. Okay, well, you can, you can uh, have... You can have a dream that's precognitive, or you don't have to have a dream. You can just know things, and that is getting data out of the future probable database. But those things are only probable. Some things have a very high probability of happening. So if, you, if there's something that has a .999 probability of happening, well, that's very likely it's going to happen. Something could make it not happen. That probability could change drastically, perhaps. but those sorts of things uh, will happen. Sometimes we have precognitive dreams. Maybe I shouldn't go there. It just complicates things. Sometimes we have precognitive dreams um, because the system would like to help wake us up to the reality being uh, bigger and, and uh, to the idea that consciousness is fundamental. And we will have a dream, and then we will see something that matches it. And it may just be that this is the system working that to us, after all, everything that we experience is a data stream from the system. Our experience is information. It comes from a system. If the system wants to give us some special information to wake us up, then it can do that as well. So precognitive dreams are just data out of a future probable database. All right, Tom, another question from the MBT forum. That's a little bit interesting. Um, he's noticed mainstream, this is about, uh, this is from Still Thinking. Uh, I've noticed mainstream physicists talk about information being stored on the surface of black holes, which seems to be another step towards forward towards the acceptance of a computed reality. I was wondering about black holes. They are sometimes described as two-dimensional and information spread over the surface. Could they be a digital mirror or reflecting the physical realm, not in light? but in code? Um, no, not likely. What happens is that we in physics, and I guess most other, other uh, places, other disciplines as well, we look at things that we don't understand very well. And when there's something like a black hole or something like um, 
Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the universe is expanding. Its, it's expansion is actually accelerating. We get these facts and we don't understand them. We have a tendency to make things up that answer those questions. We don't like the idea that we don't understand it. So we tend to make up theories. And if our understanding is pretty deep, then we make up things that are, that are pretty, um, what should we say, have a lot of conjecture in them. So that is, that is one of those things. Yes, mathematically, we can show relationships between information on a surface and, and uh, the information contained within a, within a surface and so on. But extrapolating that to this being our, our reality as a holographic uh, um, something because of all the information that's on the surface of a black hole, well, that's just a lot of hand-waving conjecture because people really don't have a good answer. So they'd rather have a conjecture, kind of wild answer, than no answer at all. So that goes on, I think, in most fields when you don't understand things and you have facts. I think the archaeologists do a lot of that as as well. Um, they interpret things that are, of course, a million years old, and there's not a whole lot of facts. So you have a lot of you have a lot of conjecture there. So black holes are interesting. They're mathematically interesting. They're physically interesting. They they exist, but whether or not they are anything more than just very dense matter that is so dense and so much matter in such a tight space that light cannot escape it. That's probably just all they are. It's another physical fact in our physical universe that comes from our rule set, and it doesn't have to have any esoteric special meaning more than that. Now, I don't find that necessary. That seems to be one of, another one of those models, Donna, that has a whole handful of assumptions. Well, if this and if that and if that, and you get six or seven ifs in a row, and then you get a conjecture at the end of all of those ifs. And uh, so I don't, I don't see a lot of merit in those sorts of conjectures. Not that they're necessarily wrong. You know, it's just that they don't have a lot of uh, value. They're not very simple explanations. They're not very elegant explanations. They tend to have too many assumptions. <laughs>